We do appreciate so very much your presence this morning. And our heart's desire and our prayer is that as we study together from the Word of God this morning, we'll say something that will be a source of strength and encouragement and edification to you. And you'll leave here this morning, you'll be builded up in the most holy faith, and tonight when you pillow your head for slumber, you'll say, it was good to have been in the Lord's house this morning. If you watch any news programs on TV, if you look on your phone and search news apps, or if you just talk to people on the street, one of the things people in our day and time struggle with, and they struggle with it mightily, is discontent. And if you look at advertising, the purpose of advertising is ultimately to make us unhappy. That your car is just not nearly as nice as those shiny new models that have come out. Or that your clothes are not the latest fashion. Or whatever it might be, whether it's your furniture, your house, your clothes, your car. Whatever you have is just really not as good as it ought to be. These advertisements are designed to make us dissatisfied with the current state of affairs in our lives. And they want us to replace our car or our phone or everything else with something new and improved with better features. And, oh, by the way, it also carries a higher price. I read an interesting story the other day about a man who had grown tired of his house. He and his wife had lived there for many years, and the more he looked around at his house and the more he looked around at the neighborhood, the more he wanted to be somewhere else. And his critical eye saw things that needed to be done everywhere he turned. So he decided it's time. It's time to sell this place and move on. So he contacted a professional real estate broker to come and look the place over and give him some pointers and come up with a price, and he told her to begin advertising the home for sale. And he said, while you're advertising my home for sale, I want you to find a suitable home for me to purchase. So the realtor took some notes, suggested some basic cleanups that needed to be done around the house, and then she went back to her office to produce the ads that would run in the local newspaper and the ads that would run online. But before she placed those ads, she wanted the owner and his wife to approve the copy. So she brought a copy of the ads for their approval, and arriving at the house, she sat down and she read the ad to him. Spacious home in well-cared-for condition, no renovations required, bright rooms with lots of windows, a comfortable living area, solid foundation, good roof, Simple yet pleasant garden with lots of open, grassy backyard for the family to enjoy. A lovely deck for evenings of entertaining friends are sitting quietly to watch the sunset over the park. Located in a safe, quiet neighborhood with all the amenities close by. Come and see for yourself all that this home has to offer. It won't last long on the market. Currently priced at a blank. And she told him the price. He pondered it a moment and said, read it again more slowly. She did. And he soaked up every word of the advertisement. 
He said, don't place the ad. That's everything I've always wanted in a home. I'm going to stay right here. You see, the point of that little story is that oftentimes, you and I just don't know how to be contented. Our text this morning, in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11, tells us about a man who had achieved contentment. In fact, it's a passage with a very beautiful background. It's a part of a letter that Paul wrote to his friends at Philippi, and it's primarily a thank you letter. They sent Paul a much-needed gift that warmed his heart, a gift that filled his life with sunshine. And he wants to make sure that they realize that their thoughtfulness was appreciated. He writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again. But Paul is afraid that they might think that he feels like they've slighted him. Because you see, this is the first gift he's received from these Philippian brethren in quite some time. So he hastens to add... Wherein you also were careful, but you lacked opportunity. He said, I did not doubt your love because I failed to hear from you. I believe in your friendship and I believe in your devotion enough to trust you in silence. I knew you were loving me all the time, whether I heard from you or not. You see, Paul rejoiced in this gift because it was an expression of love from his friends. And he was also rejoicing because he was sure this gift was going to bring a blessing to the giver. Because he knew what Jesus had said. When Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And it enabled his friends to share in the great work Paul was doing in preaching the gospel. And that not only that, this gift they sent, it helped Paul meet his material, his physical needs. Because thanks to the prosperity and the generosity of his friends... Paul was able to enjoy comforts that for him would have otherwise been impossible. Paul wants them to know something else. He wants them to know that while it's made his life easier, it wasn't a necessity. He wants them to understand that if the gift hadn't come, he would not have been despondent. He wants them to know he could survive without it and not become bitter. And so he says in verse 11 of chapter 4, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Paul's learned something that sometimes we need to learn. Paul's learned to be satisfied with what he has. Paul has learned the secret of contentment. And when Paul says, I've learned in whatsoever state I am to be content, it comes as a bit of a shock to us. And it's shocking because of what we know of Paul. Because Paul is not the kind of man we would usually associate contentment with. You see, thinking of this virtue of contentment, what do we think about? Often we think of it as belonging to someone of a passive 
and a sluggish nature. Paul was the very opposite of that. Paul was a man who was on fire. Paul was a man of God who had dynamite in his soul. And when you first come in contact with Saul or Paul, his name is Saul, and he's a blazing persecutor of the early church. It said he's breathing out threatenings and slaughter. And watching him as we first come in contact with him and see the rage that is outside, we can feel like this outward rage is because he's also raging inside. And yet in this passage in the Philippian letter, this hot-hearted man is actually claiming he's learned to be content. But you see, it's also shocking because I'm afraid oftentimes we have a low estimation of contentment. But Paul, in saying he has learned to be content, he seems to think he's found a worthwhile prize. And yet, as I said, you and I don't generally look upon contentment as a very high achievement. In our opinion, if contentment is a virtue, it is at best a questionable virtue. We think people ought to be go-getters. Ought to be out there scratching and clawing for something else. And we're a bit astonished, really, to see Paul claiming the achievement of contentment as a prize when sometimes we regard it more as a liability than an asset. What we need to know, what you and I need to understand, is what this man of God, this apostle, meant by contentment. You see, Paul did not mean he had found some kind of counterfeit contentment like so many today have found. Paul had not reached a point that he had learned not to care. Paul had not reached a point where he greeted the experience of life with a ho-hub and a yawn. He knew indifference was not a virtue, but a vice. And his contentment was not a smug self-satisfaction on the part of the apostle. He knew it was not like Robert Louis Stevenson writes in his Child's Garden of Verses, When I am grown to man's estate, I shall be very proud and great, and tell the other girls and boys not to meddle with my toys. He knew it wasn't that kind of a counterfeit commitment or contentment. Paul had accomplished a lot of great things in his life. Paul had accomplished a lot of noble things in his life. Paul had climbed to the mountaintops. He had reached a point that he could say, For me to live is Christ. He had learned to suffer gladly for the faith in Jesus Christ. He was on the way to becoming a martyr for Jesus. The time was not far off when he would have the last full measure of devotion. To Paul's credit, he never found out that he was a martyr. You see, conscious martyrs, and we've all known them, they tend to become a bit self-satisfied. 
They become victims of arrested development and can sometimes be quite hard to live with. Paul was a great saint, to be sure. But Paul was not a self-satisfied saint. He was satisfied with the road that he was traveling. But he was not satisfied with the gold it attained. Contentment, it didn't mean that he was resigned to his fate. I've known people that felt like this type of resignation, well, that's my fate in life. And that that kind of resignation was one of life's supreme virtues. But if resignation to accepting one's fate, oh, well, this is the way it's going to be. If that's a virtue, it's a very imperfect virtue. Resignation and saying, well, this is the way life's going to be for me. That carries the idea that you set out to achieve something worthwhile. And you decided to quit and be satisfied with nothing at all or a poor second best. Resignation. That was the fate of the ten spies that went out to spy out the promised land. They said, oh, it's a great land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. But we saw giants there, the sons of Anak. And we were like grasshoppers in their eyes. There's no way... We can't go and take this promised land. It's a good land. It flows with milk and honey. But they were afraid of the bloodletting that might be necessary to possess it. So they became resigned to the fact that they'd never be in the promised land. And that kind of resignation is a deadly tragedy. Because being resigned to one's fate, like the ten spies were, that means not only have we missed the prize, But we've convinced ourselves to be satisfied with failure. Here's what Paul is saying. He's simply saying circumstances have not controlled his life. He has learned to approve of the experiences of his life. And he doesn't mean that everything is always turned out right side up for him. Like Irma Bombeck wrote, sometimes Paul's bread landed jelly side down. You ever drop a piece of toast, you know what I'm talking about. Well, sometimes for Paul, life landed jelly side down. But Paul said, these things do not control me. I have learned to control them. How, Paul? I've learned to live from within instead of from without. As Kipling says, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. And Paul tells us how this has all worked in his own life. He says in the very next verse, he says, I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Paul had known what it was to live in prosperity. And living in prosperity and with prosperity is often a great achievement. Much more than often we realize. But generally speaking, the more we prosper 
the more discontented we become. Oftentimes we're like the child at Christmas that wakes up on Christmas morning and surrounded by toys and then looks around and says, is this all? Well, what's true of little children is often true of grown-up children. We sometimes think with pity of our pioneer ancestors. Their conveniences were few. And their amusements were quite meager. And we are, we are possessed with so many more things than they had. We've got so much more in our toy box than they ever thought about. Write this down. It's on the final exam. If things could make for contentment, our generation would be the most contented generation this world has ever known. But if you look around you, you will find and see the most restless people who have ever lived. Because amongst all the things that we have in our world, we're like a cat drowning in a bowl of cream looking for something to eat. And we don't know how to be content with success. Paul had learned how to prosper. Paul had learned how to live humbly. Paul had learned the secret of going without. That may not be as hard as learning to prosper, but it's still a great achievement. Now, he has not learned how to go without in stoical fashion, making sure the whole world knows it. He's learned to go without gladly. Humbly. Are you familiar with the southern heroine, Scarlett O'Hara? Or as she's referred to, Katie Scarlett O'Hara. She has a certain kind of grit that commands our respect. But if you actually look at the movie, and if you read the book, poor Scarlett, she's more detestable than she is lovable. The war is over. And she has to go without. She has to be actually hungry for the first time in her life. And Scarlett O'Hara bears her lot with bitterness. And she declares that she will never go hungry again, even if she has to steal or even kill. She never learns how to live humbly. Paul has learned the secret of going without things and without more priceless treasures. He's learned how to go without his youth and be content to be Paul the aged. He's learned to go without health, being afflicted with his thorn in the flesh. And he's learned to rejoice both because of it and in spite of it. Paul has learned how to go without the plaudits and the approval of the crowd. Naturally, he loved appreciation. I mean, everybody that's human loves appreciation. Paul had a great capacity to love. And he therefore had a deep longing to be loved. And when those who heard him preach approved, he was thrilled. 
But their approval was not necessary. There was one occasion that Paul preached and the people were so enthralled and he was so popular that the people actually regarded him as a god. There was another occasion where he preached and he barely escaped being stoned to death. But the apostle learned to carry on and to preach Jesus Christ whether people approved or they disapproved. He'd even learned to go without his freedom. He was eager to carry on his great work. He had a burning desire to preach the gospel to the whole world. But he often found himself in prison. He says, I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. I know how to prosper. I know how to go without. We've got to learn the secret. How did he do it? How did Paul learn this contentment? He did not learn contentment by seeking contentment as an end. You can no more find contentment seeking it than you can make yourself go to sleep. You ever known you had to get up extra early some morning? And so you go to sleep or go to bed and you say, I've got to go to sleep. And you lay there, I've got to go to sleep. I've got to go to sleep. I've got to go to sleep. How'd that work out for you? <laughs> Not very good, did it? It doesn't happen. It's impossible to find contentment seeking it as it is to make yourself go to sleep. It's also as impossible to find contentment seeking it as an end as it is to find real happiness by seeking it. Have you ever thought about people that are really happy? People that are really joyous? Have you ever thought about who those really happy, really joyous people are? It's not those people that say, well, I'm fixing to be, I'm going to be happy and I'm going to have a good time. Some of the most restless people. Some of the most unhappy people I've ever known are those who spend all their time and all their energy trying to have a good time. Contentment is a byproduct of seeking higher values. To find contentment, we've got to have an interest outside of ourselves. And before we can find contentment, we've got to rid ourselves of the vicious enemies of contentment. Things like selfishness, hatred, envy, and jealousy. And the supreme secret of contentment is religious certainty. Paul found that. He wrote about it. This man who said, I've learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content, wrote to Timothy in his last letter that's preserved for us in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12 and said, For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. Why, Paul? Because I know whom I have believed. Paul didn't say, I know what I believe. 
He didn't say, I know what I believe in. I know whom I have believed. His faith was in a person, and that person was Jesus Christ. And because Paul knew whom he had believed, he knew Jesus Christ. He could say, I've learned in wherever I am, in whatever my condition is, whatever my circumstances are, because I know Jesus, I can be content. We've got to have an interest outside of ourselves. You see, think about a baby. I don't care how good-natured and pleasant a baby can be. If that baby's hungry, that baby's going to be restless. If that baby's hungry, that baby's going to be discontented. And that baby's going to let you know it's discontented. But you feel that little tummy, and that baby's going to be pleasant and smiling and happy and start cooing once more. It matters not what might come in our lives. It doesn't matter what comes in my life or yours. Without God, we are discontented. Because God is the bread of life. And God is the fountain of living waters. Remember what David said in Psalm 42 and verse 1? As the heart panteth after the water's brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. As the red deer is thirsty for the cool, refreshing mountain stream after being hated in the chase, so is my soul thirsty for you, God, and for your refreshing grace. That's what David said. His soul was panting for God just as the red deer was panting for water. That, beloved, is the fountain source of all real contentment. A solid faith in God. Is that a part of your makeup this morning? Is contentment a part of your makeup this morning? If contentment is not a part of your makeup, then maybe you need a deeper, more abiding faith in God. Maybe you need to make changes. You need to do something to make Jesus Christ the Lord and Master of your life. This is your opportunity to come and let us help you with that as together we stand and while we sing.